podcast, everyone. This is Brother Jason, and you are listening to the Apostolic Bible Study Time podcast. Coming to you from the Gaffney Bible Fellowship in Gaffney, South Carolina. If you would like to email us for any reason, our email address is apostolicbiblestudytime at gmail.com. That's apostolicbiblestudytime at gmail.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash Apostolic Bible Study Time. Again, that is facebook.com forward slash Apostolic Bible Study Time. I'd just like to give a shout out here in the beginning. I put it in the description one time, but our theme music is It's All in Him, written by George R. Farrow. It was published in 1920. But the artist we have singing it there is Kelsey Harrell. I, I've never met him. I found him on YouTube, and he was singing the song, and I so loved the, the spirit he was putting behind it. I messaged him on YouTube, and he, he said I could use it. So that's been our theme music for the last couple months here as we've been in Hebrews. And today we're going to pick up in Hebrews 10, last time we left off at verse 8, so of course that's where we'll pick up this time. Above, when he said sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. So when he has taken away the first, he has taken away the sacrificial system that was the cleansing agent of the old covenant. So no longer do we take the, the bulls and the goats up to the priest and have them again shed blood year after year to cover our sins, but now by the blood of Jesus Christ, he hasn't just covered it, but he's taken away our sin in this dispensation of time. You know, there, there's many people out there that they'll, they'll tell you, well, I'm too sinful to come to church and God will never accept me. And you've heard the variants. I'm sure we all have family. We all have friends. We all have co-workers. There's many people that will use this as their excuse to keep them from getting right with God. But Isaiah says in Isaiah 64 and 6, but we are all as an unclean thing. Again, but we are all as an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags and we all do fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. So this excuse is just that. It's no excuse at all. It doesn't come in between the sinner and God. When you come to God, he doesn't care what you have done because he takes it away. And he doesn't leave it at just taking away your sin. He doesn't leave it as just forgiving your sin and calling you son, but he makes you what uh, Peter calls over there. I believe it is the book of First Peter, the first chapter. He has made us partakers of the divine nature. He will change your, your very being from the inside out. He, he will change you to where you don't want to sin against him anymore. What did the angel 
tell Joseph and Mary in the book of Matthew concerning Jesus. He said, His name shall be called Jesus, and he shall save his people from their sins. Not in their sins. He will save his people from their sins. In Romans, the fifth chapter, verses 6 through 11 here, Paul says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Jesus came, and when that veil was rent in twain from top to bottom, Jesus broke the sacrificial system. No longer was a death required because his death was a substitution, not just a one-time thing, but his death was a substitution for all time. Moving on here to verse 10 says, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 10, the World of Flame Study Bible here, this is a quote, says the verb translated sanctified is derived from the adjective hagios, commonly related to holiness, separation, and the saints of God. This verse describes the instantaneous sanctification of setting apart of believers unto God that takes place at regeneration. 1 Corinthians, the 6th chapter, the 11th verse, Paul says, And such were some of you, but ye are washed. I want you to keep that phrase in your mind, but ye are washed. We're going to pick this back up in a little bit. But ye are sanctified but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. This is the, the work that God does in your heart from the get-go. This is when God changes you. I, I had a brother years ago, he described it as when God flips the light switch on. And the more I think about it, you know, re really that does work. That does work. Let, let's read on down here. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. When uh, we go back here to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, he says it here, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. 
we've discussed this before in earlier episodes of Hebrews, but when you go into the tabernacle or later on you go into the temple, you might look around and you might look for a place to sit down, but there was no place to sit. A chair was not part of the furniture because the priest's work was never done. There was always another sacrifice to perform. There was always shoe bread. There was always blood to, to, to pour or blood to sprinkle. It was always going on. But Jesus, signifying he is our high priest, sat down on the right hand of majesty. Now, does that mean that there's two gods? No, that, that, that's not what that means. In uh, the book of Revelation, when you look, John looked and he saw one sat upon the throne. Isaiah 43 and 11. I, even I, am the Lord and beside me, not besides. If he would say besides me, he'd be looking elsewhere, but beside me, he's saying literally beside me there is no Savior. I, even I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. There was one that sat upon the throne. We have a banner that serves as our backdrop right now in our church behind the pulpit. And it has one simple verse of scripture. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. When Jesus came and now he as our high priest, when it says he sat on the right hand of the majesty on high, that is the office he filled. Years ago, <laughs> millennia ago, they referred to our doctrine, or very similar anyways, referred to it as modalism saying that God did not exist simultaneously as three different people, but God has filled three different offices. I think often over there in the book of John when Jesus was trying to prepare the apostles and he was trying to help them to understand what was getting ready to happen, he told them, he said, I will not leave you comfortless I will come again to you. And on the day of Pentecost, he came and he was there. He is the Holy Ghost. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3rd chapter, I believe it's the 17th verse goes, and now the Lord is that spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Now the Lord is that spirit. It doesn't get any more plain. I understand where Trinitarians will trip over the word. I, I get it. I understand. But from the beginning in the book of Genesis over to the book of Revelation, there is one God. And yes, I know, he said, let us create man in our image. But that was a majestic plural. That was the, the, the word Elohim. That did not mean there was multiple gods. It just means in translation, our God is too big to fit in a singular pronoun. Amen. Let's move on down here. He says, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. Over in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, the 24th verse through the 28th verse. Now when he's expecting here till his enemies be made his footstool. He says, then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom, of God, kingdom to God, even the Father. 
Well, you got me there, right? When he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. You see, Jesus is the one putting the enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is expected which did put all things under him. And when he shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Okay, let's go over to Ephesians, the fifth chapter in the 27th verse, and again, this clears it up. He says that he might present it to himself. <laughs> I guess that puts a little different uh, look on things here. But he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Amen. I, I read this and there is one God. He, he's so big, I understand that it, it's difficult sometimes, but when you dig in and you look at the Trinity and you look at the, the way that it is taught and the way that they contradict Scripture left and right, contradict Scripture all through the Word of God, oneness is honestly the only thing that makes sense. I've said before, uh, again, Deuteronomy 6 and 4, it is the height of arrogance to go to the Jews. And now they have revived their dead language of Hebrew. But we, we go to the Jews and they have learned before this time it was still kept alive through the rabbis and it was kept alive because the, the child had to be able to read the, the, the Hebrew for his bar mitzvah, if I'm remembering correctly. But it is the height of arrogance to go to a people and tell them that they don't know what they're talking about, that one does not mean one. Exactly where does one mean anything other than one? That means one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. It is one. It is a numeral. There's nothing else beside them. And they chase people away from the truth by getting in and trying to teach doctrines that aren't in the word of God. And I'm going off on a tangent here, I understand. It's just there's been so many people in the past that the, the Trinity has been a stumbling block to them. And you try to bring them over and you try to show them where nobody in the Bible was ever baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. But that Trinity doctrine is just a stumbling block to them because of that false doctrine now they stumble. They can't accept the baptism in the name of Jesus Christ according to Acts 2.38. We'll, we'll keep reading here. Let's read down to verse 17 now. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he had said before this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law 
laws into their inward hearts. I'm sorry, that was plural. I will put my laws into their inward hearts and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. This passage of scripture is referencing Jeremiah 31 verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So God has taken this law from tablets of stone and he's written it someplace where they couldn't lose it. Second Corinthians, the third chapter and the third verse, Paul says, for as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but the fleshly tables of the heart. When I read this, what comes to my mind is uh, we we well let's let's just go over to Second uh, Kings. We'll go to the twenty second chapter and pick up the eighth verse. King Josiah to set the the scene here. King Josiah has just uh, come of age and he's sending the priest out and the priests are starting to rebuild the temple and they're starting to fix things. Well. And as they're fixing things in the temple, that they find something that should have never been missing to begin with. 2 Kings 22nd chapter, verses 8 through 11. And Hilkiah the priest said unto Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it, and Shaphan and the, uh, the scribe came to the king and brought the king word again and said, Thy servants have gathered the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of them that do the work, that have the oversight of the house of the Lord. And Shaphan the scribe shewed the king, saying, Hil Hilkiah the priest hath delivered me a book, and Shaphan read it before the king. And it came to pass when the king had heard the words of the book of the law that he rent his clothes. So we realize when we're reading this that they had lost, for all intents and purposes, they had lost their Bible. And they had been having church for it doesn't state how many generations, but they had just been running off of their traditions. And they had been running off of what the priests knew to do, but they did not have the word of God to guide them. 
I don't think they were evil people that lost the word of God. But when we read about the history of Judah, it, it, it was a very churning time. Things were always, it was going this way, it was going that way. I mean, that they had a good king. They'd have a king that was cold. And all this was happening. But Josiah stands up and he says, go work on the temple. And when they work on the temple, they realize, hey, we've been on autopilot all this time. And you know, the really scary thing is, sometimes I wonder if people don't even bother to get the Holy Ghost or they don't fast and they don't pray and they don't seek God, but they've been doing it for so long that they're just on autopilot. You understand the, the, the illustration that I'm giving here. But God is saying, listen, I've put this table on, I, I, I put this wall on stone and they put that stone in the ark. And then Moses sat down and Moses wrote a copy of the law and he put it beside the ark. And for generations, they took that and they would copy it meticulously. I mean, they, they made sure that every jot and every tittle was just as it was on the original. But they went all that time and then they lost the law. And God says, I'll put it someplace where you'll never lose it again. I'm going to write my law on your hearts. I'm going to write it where you can't lose it. And if you seek me, it'll be there and it will come afresh into your mind because that's what God does. God will bring the conviction. God will bring the revelation. And suddenly you'll start thinking about that law because it's in a place where it can't get lost anymore. I've said before that uh, in the book of Isaiah, one of the cruelest and one of the kindest things God does to a backslider that has the Holy Ghost. God's telling Isaiah, he says that they're going to hear a word when they step to the left hand or they step to the right. And there's going to be a voice speaking behind them saying, this is the way, walk ye in it. If you have backslidden children, if you have a backslidden husband, I promise you if they had the Holy Ghost when they stepped to the left or they stepped to the right, God is still dealing with them. God is still telling that individual, this is the way, walk ye in it, because that law is still written in their hearts. That law still brings conviction and that law still wants to guide them. All they need to do is get down and pray through and just say, God, my way's not working. My way is making a mess and I am miserable. How do I know they're miserable? Because I've never seen someone that backslid out of church that was happy. When they backslide out of church, they find out the world doesn't want them. These false churches don't want them. Nobody wants them but the family of God. And you know what? When they come back, it's just like the prodigal son. They come back and God just flings his arms wide open and he'll take them back in and he'll hold on to them. Amen. We'll all have a party. God loves the backslider. God hadn't taken his law out of their hearts. All they have to do is repent. All they have to do is turn to him and all is forgiven. He's a good God. He is a good God. He's a heavenly father. Amen. Let's read down some more here. Verse 18. 
Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sins. Now you're going to hear that preached time and time again that, well, that means if you backslide, there, there's nothing else, there, there's no way you can repent and come back. But that is not what this is saying. It's saying that once Christ offered up himself, the just for the unjust, that that was the only sacrifice that is ever needed. There is no more. There's nothing else to do. Yes, the backslider needs to come back and repent, but that's not what this is dealing with. This is dealing with the sacrifice of Christ. This is not dealing with the sinner. We don't have Jesus and then go out and backslide and then take a lamb and slit its throat. Um, I don't really mean to date this podcast, but just recently in Jericho, their priests in Israel have begun practicing the sacrifices in anticipation of the temple being rebuilt. But the sacrifice for Israel has already been given in Jesus Christ. He came and died for their sins. You know the scripture. Your Chances are you're listening to this, you're apostolic and you've heard it preached your whole life. What did Peter say? Peter said, repent, Acts 2, 38, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. But Acts 2 and 39 says the promise is unto you, speaking to the Jews of that day and to your children, speaking of their offspring and to all them that are afar off talking about us Gentiles, even to all them whom the Lord our God shall call. And I know that last few words I didn't quote quite right there, but the point is the covenant is still the same. The door is open the same way. Jesus is still the door. The Jews just need to turn to Jesus. There's not going to be one way for a Jew to be saved and another way for the Gentile. The covenant is the same. John, the 10th chapter, Jesus said there's going to be one fold in one shepherd. Amen. That shepherd's Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 18. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. Amen, a new and living way. Well, what is he talking about, a new and a living way? Let's go back to the beginning. Let's go to Genesis, the third chapter. We're going to pick up in the 15th verse and read down through 21. And I will put enmity, speaking to the serpent, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children and thy desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. 
Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it was thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. Death was not in God's design. God did not design things to die. God did not design this world to be a broken place. He didn't design the Garden of Eden to be a broken place. He designed it to be a place where he could come down into the garden in the cool of the day and he could have communion with his greatest creation, which is man. We are the only ones that are created in the image of God. Everything else is created after its own image, but mankind was created in the image of God, and God so wanted to be able to have that time to spend with his creation, to spend with his children. But sin broke it. And what happened? God had to slaughter those poor animals because he made them coats of skins. Something was using those skins before God took them. Something had to die to cover their sins. So James, in the first chapter, verses 14 and 15, he says here, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Death is not the creation of God. Death is the creation of sin because death wasn't in the garden until Adam and Eve sinned. So when God is telling us, or the, the writer here in Hebrews, when he's talking about a new and living way, it's because sin brings death. So something had to be done about sin. But Abel over in Genesis in the fourth chapter, the third verse, just to back up what we're saying here. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth and his countenance fell. I've thought about this some. I mean, you think about what grows. We're coming into the fall season as this is being recorded and you have the pretty orange pumpkins and you have the yellow squash and things are still pretty green right now. You've got tomatoes out there that are red in your garden. And, you know, I can imagine Cain in his carnal mind coming before the Lord with what he thought was a beautiful sacrifice. What does Proverbs 14 and 12 tell us? There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the ways thereof are the ways of death. You know, Cain probably thought he was doing good. 
but he didn't have the revelation. He didn't understand. But what does Jesus tell us about Abel? Let's go over to Luke, the 11th chapter, the 49th verse. And we're going to read down through 51. Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they shall slay and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. Now catch this. From the blood of Abel. Who's he speaking about here? He's speaking about the prophets. Now just let's finish this scripture. From the blood of Abel under the blood of Zechariah. This is speaking of Zechariah in the Old Testament of the book of Zechariah. But uh, under the blood of Zechariah which perished between the altar and the temple. Verily I say unto you it shall be required of this generation. So Jesus is speaking here and Jesus is telling us quite plainly that Abel was a prophet of God. He had a revelation to understand that God didn't want those pretty vegetables. He didn't want fried zucchini. He wanted a hunk of bloody meat that Abel came out and he put on that altar. That's what God had required of mankind to cover their sins. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. But Abel was a prophet. He had that revelation. But we have Cain and he didn't understand because he was a carnal-minded individual. He, he was the early type of Esau that sold his birthright for a bowl of beans because he was a lousy hunter. I think about Esau, and I made this joke in church not too long ago, but when I think about Esau, I think he's a redneck. I think Esau probably, if he lived today, he'd have one of these jacked up trucks and the, the big tires on it and beer cans in the back. I don't think Esau was a wicked, evil man. I think he was a carnal-minded man. I think he was a very carnal individual. He was what we would call a good old boy. He might even show up to the Baptist church every once in a while. But he did not understand what he had when he sold his birthright. There are spiritually minded people such as Abel. And Jacob, even though he was a shyster, even though he was a swindler, he still had that spiritual mindset to know that he wanted the blessing of God. And then there is also the carnal minded people that want nothing to do with the blessings of God. They just want to go out and they want to do what they want to do just to live their life and have fun. But Abel was a prophet and he understood that blood was required to cover sin. So it's a new and living way because looking back to Hebrews 10 and 14, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. So through Jesus Christ's death, he brought us life. And we are no longer under the death of the old covenant. Amen. So there's no more bringing that sacrifice in. There's no more coming to the priest. The priesthood has been done away with. I, you can look at the ministry and say they're a type of the priesthood. I get that. I understand it. But they're no longer offering offerings because the offering has been offered. It's done. He has taken away the old so he can give you the new. 
He has taken away the death so he can give you eternal life. Let's read on down a little bit here. By a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an even, evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So being washed with pure water, you remember a few scriptures ago, I asked you to keep in mind what he was talking about. We were reading in 1 Corinthians, that's what it was. Perhaps 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry. I've lost myself here. But he, he's talking about being washed with pure water. So let's go back to Leviticus, the 22nd chapter. And the 6th verse. The soul which has touched any such, uh, any such shall be unclean until even and shall not eat of the holy things unless he wash his flesh with water. So Jesus has opened up the way. We were all unclean. We were all in our sin. We were all doing things that displeased God. We were always doing things that put us in a position to be on the outs with God. So Jesus comes down and he opens up this way through his flesh. Now we are washed with pure water. Well, what does Peter say about that? In 1 Peter 3 and 21, the light figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can tie baptism into this. We can look and we can understand all the, the, the ceremonial washing and everything. It was all types and shadows. That's why Jesus said in Mark 16, verse 16, he said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. You have to be washed, but you're washed in his name and you are also washed on the inside by his spirit. You become again his creation and God again, just like Adam and Eve, but better because now instead of being on the outside of Adam and Eve, he is on the inside of his church. Jesus on the inside, working on the outside. Oh, what a change in my life. Verse 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For he is faithful that promised. What does James tell us about wavering? He mentions it twice here. James 1 and 8, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. God wants you to come to him in faith. God wants you to approach him. God wants to be in communion with you. God wants you to have faith in him. There is no fear in faith. There is no fear in love. God doesn't God wants you to fear him as in respect. But if you are his child and you are walking for him, you know that that mediator is there for you. James 4 verse 8, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands ye sinners and purify your hearts ye double-minded. Amen. God's good. 
God will forgive you. God will clean you up. God will accept you. And God will do things that you never would have dreamed when you was a sinner. You never would have dreamed that God was that good, that God would be that real in your life. Amen. That's why you need the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's why we preach this. That's I, I was listening to uh, Brother Bernard's book about the, the ancient doctrines of the church and you know, clear up into the 300 and 400 A.D. before the Catholic Church really got rooted in and started taking all the believers, people were still speaking in tongues. There was still people being healed. There was still people being moved by the Spirit. The Holy Ghost was still being poured out until somebody came up and started preaching that no, that's not for you. It's for the apostles. But I'll tell you what, in these last days that we live in, you can get the Holy Ghost and God can use you in a mighty way. Amen. We're going to end off there, but I'll tell you what, we serve a good God. Till next time, this is Brother Jason reminding you that Jesus is not in the Godhead. But in him dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Amen. Till next time, goodbye and God bless.